Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Komen, sitting in the safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, man. What's going on? How are you? Uh, well, I would say this week is slightly better than my terrible week last week. It's still not great, but uh, it's, uh, I guess, uh, progress, not perfection. You've got birds living in your house now? Um, I've got bats in the belfry. Bats in the belfry. Did you find a tree person? Uh, well, all the tree stuff is done. Yeah, yeah. All, all of my tree uh, nightmares are over. From this- your house? From your house? Yeah, the, the from the houses, from the uh, the the rental properties, all the tree stuff. I mean, it's still sitting in front of all those properties. You know, I still have my giant FEMA piles uh, stacked up, killing my my grass, and a couple of properties, uh, three properties to be exact. But uh, but no, the the real thing at this point is, I told you that uh, that tree that that crushed all those outbuildings at uh, at your old apartment. Um, and that, that apartment is no longer habitable until I can get that rebuilt. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a few dry days last week where you could have done some outdoor construction, but the, the, uh, the carpenters, the, the construction crew was, couldn't get to the job yet. So now it's supposed to start this week, but, uh, you know, as of today, we have uh, a big stretch of rain coming. So I don't know. What about your place? Did you say your attic was leaking? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was just up there because the rain started just uh, about an hour ago and it was r- coming down pretty hard over here. So I had to climb up into the attic and make sure my buckets were uh, uh, properly placed for this rain. You don't have blue, you didn't get any blue tarps? I, I can't put a tarp on my roof because it's a uh, rigid tile. You can't nail into them, it just breaks more tiles. You know, there's the, there's, that's the way they hold those tarps down is with a, a piece of one by two that they nail into usually the fiberglass shingles. Oh. Um, so you can't do that. I just have like uh, some spot uh, patches which don't keep all the water out. They just they reduce the amount of water that's pouring in. So, um, you know, I have a whole series of buckets. Anytime it starts to rain, I have to climb up in the attic and make sure that the buckets are catching all the all the drips. It's really been a, a, you know, nothing has happened in two weeks. That's the thing. You come out of the storm, you, you hit the ground running, you try to make a lot of progress, and, and you do in a hurry. But, uh, you know, then you, the, the kind of inertia of everything catches up to you. And, uh, you know, now really nothing's happened in the last two weeks. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, anyway. Yeah, well, no. you know, uh, speaking of all that, you know, uh, there's people from all over the country, all over the world coming here to help and, you know, rebuild and, and put the power back on and, mm-hmm. you know, do this and do that. And uh, I, I, this happened to me last week. I wanted to say it on last week's show, but I didn't get a chance. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I found myself when I'm driving around going to and from the market or to work or whatever, uh, I would like, I'd see these utility workers, you know, doing, you know, they did the best job they could to get power back on and, and get the streets open and get the trash picked up and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I, 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 uh, I was driving by this uh, one utility truck and it had uh, New York license plates on it and New York license plates on it. And, uh, I gave the guy a thumbs up mm-hmm. and he flipped me off. Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess he thought I was flipping him off or something. But uh, uh, huh. And the thing was, I, I gave him a thumbs up, and then the light turned red, and he, he flipped me off, and he started kind of walking towards my car. Oh, jeez. You know? So I was like, what the hell is this? You know, And I was like praying for the green light. You know, come on, green light. And... Uh, <laughs> He he just looked at he came up to my passenger side window and stared at me and I I gave I go I gave you the thumbs up man thumbs up thank you thank you and he just stared at me and walked away. Huh? Maybe he was he was on on a crew or just like a a a crazy street person. No, he was on a crew. He had a hard hat on. He had one of those vests on, and he. uh, he had some company uh, that they were helping with the telephone poles and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it just goes to show you, you know, when I try 
when I try to be nice to somebody or something, you know, it just always, uh, you know, ends up being, I get spit on well. you know, by somebody, you know, they, they don't appreciate it. So, I, you know, like before, I'm just, I'm done being nice. No more nice. I wouldn't give up yeah. after one try, Manny. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's, but I do appreciate the effort. That was nice. Uh, some uh, encouraging, yeah. uh, you know, c- civic-minded, uh, you know, uh, that was that was nice. I like that, Manny. Well, it is it is election season, so I have to try to be nice. You know, right, right. It's the season of uh, uh, shaking babies and kissing hands and right. stuff like yes, that. Yes, yes. You know, I have to go out there and get noticed. I'm uh, I'm doing a bunch of uh, forms this week. Uh, you know. So, you know, it is what it is, you know, so I'm trying to be my best on, okay. on my best behavior, as they say. Right, you know? right. And, and we actually yeah. have a, a date for the uh, Manny for Mayor fundraiser, right? Oh, yeah. We're having a big party. Yes. It's October 16th at the Carrollton Station. Right. We've got some fabulous uh, at seven o'clock. It's a Saturday night. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, we got some fabulous acts, you know, we're going to play. Mm-hmm. I might even do a bit myself. Okay. Um, you know, it should be a lot of fun and, and, uh, there's going to be, uh, if you show up early, you'll, you'll get some, uh, maybe some bumper stickers or a yard sign. Okay. Who knows what you might get. And it's going to be some funny stuff. You know, it's always got the troubled theme in it. All our little campaign slogans right you, know, always you, you want to you want to reveal the 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 variation for this uh no no nah, nah, i mean it's got troubled you know i i was thinking like that uh that carpenter song we've only just begun uh-huh. and i'm thinking well maybe troubles just begun <laughs> you know <laughs> sure <laughs> vote manny chevrolet troubles just begun you know that okay kind of stuff. yeah yeah you yeah. know okay so uh you know that might be a part of it but we've got something new and and it might not be the only uh, fundraiser we have. We're thinking of maybe doing another one. You know, my number two guy, Mr. Dave Clemens, uh, the proprietor of uh, Snake and Jake's Christmas Club. Yes. Uh, he's an idea guy. He's got ideas coming out of his ears, man, out of okay. his ass, okay. every, every, Everywhere. every every hole, every, every hole out of his – yeah, I got – you know, he's got, he's an idea guy and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Dave, uh, most of them, most of what he comes out of his mouth is just bullshit, but, uh, there's always one out of every, maybe 38 things that he says that you can say, Hey, that's not bad. You okay. It's not bad, you know, but you know, what's good. Who's going to be playing that night hmm. is, uh, uh, they haven't played in a long time, I guess, uh, together. Dave's old punk band, uh, sex dog. Oh, very good. That's that's a that's a great uh, a, a great booking there. Sex dog with uh, Cranston, his brother, and and uh, yeah. yeah, and somebody. So they're gonna play, uh, um, and that should be fun. They'll probably close out the night. Well, that'll you know. be fun. That's I enjoy well, that band. I, I I won't be able to 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 be there that long, but I am gonna be there at the beginning of the of the thing, and uh, we're gonna try to run a podcast uh, during the during that so it that will should be, be difficult but we'll get it done yeah yeah well, it'll, it'll be different you know it'll be a different one it'll be a hectic i'm imagining but uh you know we'll get a lot of a lot of former guests a lot of uh of uh you know just manny chevrolet fans troubled men podcast fans milling about they'll be able to, to jump in and uh get in on the action Exactly. Everyone wants to be on. Uh, everyone wants to be famous for a few minutes, you know. Right, right, right. And that 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 could be a good night for everyone to be famous, you know. Sure, sure. Uh, but other than that, you know, uh, the kids are back to school, um, and uh, it was, you know, I got I got fucked over by the storm uh, with with my job. Right. You were telling us about that, how it had uh, pushed the, uh, you know, you were right in the middle of, of the, the big rush, the big textbook rush, yeah. and then the kids got shipped out, and the, that got stopped, yeah. and then now the kids have rushed, came back in, and yes. Yeah, but you know what happened this week, I discovered late last week and this week, is that everything that I had ordered textbook-wise to be brought to the university and to be given to the kids and all that, well, UPS decided, well, we're not going to sit on these packages. We're just going to return them all back to sender, you know? Oh, Jesus. So I had thousands and thousands of titles shipped back to all these publishers. And all this week and last week, I've been trying to find out where these books are 
And basically, I've had to go back and reorder everything. Oh, man. It's just a fucking nightmare, man. Oh, but, you know, the kids seem all right about it. It's the, it's, you know, the faculty gets a little upset. But when it all comes down to, uh, you know, they talk to me like if they get upset and they talk to me over the phone about this and about that, I, I just tell them, I say, you know, you, you think you're talking to someone who gives a fuck. I really don't give a fuck. <laughs> 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 I don't give a fuck about it, you know? So... <laughs> Uh, and then when they, when they hear me say that, you know, they, uh, they kind of just, uh, there's like a little bit of silence and then they, they and then they, uh, they hang up. It shuts them down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it shut them down. Yeah. You know, these academia freaks, you know, it's right. like they're just on top molding minds and all that kind of stuff. I think when they hear the word, I don't, you know, hear the word phrase, I don't give a fuck. It's basically they've lost any argument that, you know, they have. Sure. Yeah. What can you say after that? You know, you can't, well, right. you, you should, you do. It's like, no, I don't. So, yeah. I don't give a fuck. You know, I really don't. But anyway, uh, let's get to our guest. Because okay. I hear him in the background. He sounds like he's snorting coke or something. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's the case. But, uh, well, that sounds yeah. like. <laughs> we'll, we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to have to query him on that. Okay, so yes, this is a, a terrific guest we have. We've wanted to get him on for, for a long time. He's, uh, he's a, a Grammy-winning New Orleans piano practitioner, uh, uh, Expert on funk, R&B, blues, soul. He's also a guitar player, vocalist, songwriter, band leader. He's worked with such luminaries as uh, Bonnie Raitt, Taj Mahal, Ryan Adams, Dr. John, John Schofield, on and on. Uh, he's uh, uh, as under his own name. He leads the band uh, John Cleary and the Absolute Monster Gentleman. And uh, he's put out a whole bunch of solo records over the, the last 20 years or so. We'll get into all of that. But uh, without further ado, the great Mr. John Cleary. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Oh, Thank man. you for being here. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to think I, if this is the first podcast I've been invited on or not. I think okay. I was actually on one, one prior podcast. So okay. this is number two. So it's all very exciting. Very good. I, well, I love your accent right off the bat, John. And I, you know, having been in New Orleans for as long as you have, uh, I, I commend you on not having adopted a fake New Orleans accent. You know, congratulations on. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing is, when I go, if I go back to England, they all think some people think I sound quite American. Yeah. Sometimes I think you know, you as a musician, your ears are sensitive to all sorts of inflections in music sure. and in the tones of people's voices as well, and. Uh, I love New Orleans accents. And I think oh, there course. are some some situations where, well, when I first came here, for example, there was a lot of English slang I used that people didn't understand. And so you, you learn to leave it out because it just gets boring having to explain it over and over again. And so that's the first part of your vocabulary that sort of disappears when you move, move live in a different country. What, wor what words were that? Like loo for bathroom and fag for a cigarette? That yes, all of those things, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one time in England, a flashlight is called a torch. And when right. I first, my first job at the Maple Leaf, one of the things I had to do was clean, clean up the attic, this dusty attic above the barn. I think I was probably the first person that had been in that part of the building for 100 years. So it was very dusty and covered in cobwebs, but I couldn't see anything. There was no electricity. So I asked them for a torch at the bar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they looked absolutely horrified. They thought I was going to go out there some flaming torch about to burn the whole fucking bar down. <laughs> A Molotov cocktail. Right, yeah. right. I remember I was on tour with these, uh, this English tour manager and his little sidekick and it was, you know, an American band and uh, we would we were in like a, a van or something and we'd say, uh, hey, could you, could you uh, crack that window a little bit? You know, meaning roll it down a little bit but they thought that was the most hilarious thing that we're, to crack the window we thought well no we don't mean to bash the window out just roll it down a little bit anyway yes these, uh, uh, what, what do they say about uh, England and America uh, uh, two countries uh, divided by a common language something like that yeah yes right divided by the same language Tell us about your uh, your background. So you're you're from England. Uh, uh, in, in fact, uh, just a, to a little side note: you're actually the the only only the second John J O N that's been on the podcast. Oh, I feel very flattered to hear that. It's very a special uh, 
the other one was John Lankford from the, from the Mekons, uh, the great John Lankford. No, that's not true. We, we had John Bonet Ramsey on the show. Don't you remember? I don't remember that, man. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to look uh, that one up. Okay. Yeah, we broke. We, it was breaking news. Okay. She's alive. Oh. She's alive. All right. Anyway, right. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you grew up where in England? Tell us about your, your, your formative years there. Um, well, I grew up in Kent, which is about 50 or 60 miles away from London, far enough to be the countryside. Okay. But my family were from London, but they moved out after the war. Oh, and right. so I grew up in a lovely area. They call it the Garden of England. It's very beautiful rolling meadows and farms and um, very old villages. A lot of the oh. buildings are from the 1400s, 1500s. Lovely. Um, little windy country lanes. Yes, it's very bucolic. It's absolutely beautiful. Mm. Problem is when you're 17 years old, that, all that stuff's really boring. I really couldn't wait to get to New Orleans. Couldn't wait. And so I, and I did that after I left school, and I've been there ever since, pretty much. Yeah, so you, you got here, you were 17 years old, right? I think I was actually 18. 18, I okay. I was 17 or 18. Okay, yeah. and what year was that? 1980 or 81. Okay. It was actually January 81, I believe. Okay. Well, I must have seen you shortly after you got here. I remember the first time I ever laid eyes on you, you were playing guitar. I think you were sitting in actually with uh, Cranston and Dave Clements with, with, with oh. one of their bands. And, uh, and you had like super long, uh, wavy hair. Yes. And you're playing guitar. And I was like, man, this guy plays great. And uh, and then a few days later, I think I, I saw you playing piano somewhere. And I was like, "Wait, are these guys brothers?" I'm like, no, it's the same guy. I thought you were like <laughs> twins or something. Krantz is like, "Yeah, fucking guy, man. He's like 18 years old. <laughs> Fuck that guy." <laughs> no, he was saying that in a nice way. He was just, he yeah, was yeah. Like, it's like, God damn, man. This kid comes from out of town, knows all the shit, uh, plays so good. So, 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 John, you come here mm-hmm. when you're 18. So you you said, "I'm coming to New Orleans." But so at the age of what, like 10 or 11, are you, are you listening to New Orleans music? What are you listening to there in Kent? I got a lot of stuff from my family, you know, and it's interesting, kind of everybody in my family had a taste in music, good taste too, uh, but all in specifically in different things. My aunt, who was in her early 20s in the 1970s, uh, was this very exotic character to me. She was beautiful with like hot pants and, um, you know, all the 70s yeah, and a big yeah. sort of afro hairdo. And she was digging Donny Hathaway and um, nice. the staple singers and LaBelle and all the soul stuff. She was really into that. So she was important. Where's your, where's that aunt today? Where's she? Oh, she's uh, just in um, north of London. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So she was just Heather was just one, but I had three uncles that were musicians who taught me stuff and showed me stuff. Okay, uh, for everything from Irish jigs and reels to gospel quartets to Brazilian music. But there was a lot of New Orleans in there because my um, one of my uncles had retur- had lived in New Orleans. Okay, and when he came back, brought a lot of records with him and a lot of great stories. And he still comes over and visits. But he really um, played me stuff that blew my mind. And in a way, I got probably a better education in New Orleans R&B than I would have got had I been raised here. I think partially because, you know, we all have this passion for things that seem exotic to us and different. And the sound of New Orleans rhythm and blues, even the sound of the, the city and all the stories, it sounded so colorful and sunshiny to me and the mm. uh, pictures I saw were so evocative. Um, so that's what I wanted to do, yeah. So you never got into like punk or rock or anything like that? I was that? right down there in the front of the first ever Damned Gigs, Stranglers, oh. The Adverts, oh, yes. The Clash. I saw all those bands used to come down and play in Hastings. It's a seaside town about half an hour from... The village where I lived. Okay, so you got you you got all that influence too. Yeah, that's what that was the soundtrack to my adolescence. Really, it's funny these two different things. The punk gigs, I thought it was great, a lot of fun when you're 15 years old, 16. Sure. And then all the reggae stuff that happened at the same time. All of a sudden, this is great 
Caribbean music everywhere. Um, so there was that. But at home, I was getting hip to, you know, Professor Long, hearing stories about Professor Long here and, uh, and digging on, you know, Clarence Henry records and Fats Domino records and Snooks Eaglin. Uh, so I got it pretty hip to some really good New Orleans stuff. And then when I actually got there, I was able to start filling in all the gaps, you know. So who did you, you come to New Orleans and, and you, where do you live? What part of town? Well, I was very fortunate because the whole thing could have gone very horribly wrong. Before, about a week before I came over, I bumped into, I went to see one of my uncle's gigs. He's a musician at a band playing in a, a pub called The Pegasus in Stoke Newington in North London. And his ex-girlfriend was there and we were friendly having a chat. And she said, I hear you're going to New Orleans. Where are you going to stay? And I told her I didn't have anywhere to stay. <laughs> I didn't know anybody. I had absolutely no idea. And I didn't really have much money. I'd been saving money by working on a building site. But that was my first ever sort of cash money at the end of the week. And so I'd be buying rounds down the pub and spending it all on records and stuff like you do when you're you know, a teenager. So uh, anyway, she said, here's a matchbook. matchbook of the Maple Leaf Bar, my sister is a bartender there right now working her way across the States. Call this number when you get there. So I did. And um, so I stayed on her floor for a few nights and was introduced to America um, by walking through the front door of the Maple Leaf Bar. Nice. That's huh. when I set foot on American soil, basically, after I got out of the taxi from the airport. Maple Leaf Bar. I've read that that you actually uh, that that became like your ground zero for your study there at the the Maple Leaf. Study might have to be redefined if that's the word well, I use. <laughs> sure, you know. Um, I landed on my feet. I got offered a job at the bar, and the deal was um, I got to see all the bands every night for nothing. Got in free, and um, I got a half price drink, which was pretty good. Okay. Um, and I got free drink while I worked, which is such a New <laughs> Orleans job offer. Right. You know, we got, and I got paid out of the till at the end of every day based on how many hours I'd done. So it was literally hand-to-mouth existence, which was perfect for me, absolutely perfect. So you, I'd work for a day, then go and spend all the money on you know, going to see the Neville Brothers or going to get some food or whatever. And I'd be br- broke at the end of the evening, and I'd go back to the Maple Leaf and work for another day, and then. <laughs> so that was the sort of existence I lived for quite a long time. Perfect uh, apprenticeship did, there. Did you adapt easily to the uh, cuisine here in New Orleans? Like because, you know, English well, I, food is usually very bland, you know, and stuff. Like I know, that. and that's that's exactly what I liked. And the most, yeah. um, most uh, uninteresting uh, mu- uh, Epicurean tastes. No, I didn't like spicy food. I didn't like any of that stuff. My dad cooks great curries and loves Indian food. Mm. So do my brothers and my sister, everyone else in the family. There'd be all these strong aromatic smells coming from the kitchen. And all I wanted was some sort of baked beans on toast or (laughs) 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 flavored chips or something. So yes, on the first, I had heard about red beans and rice. I'd heard it in songs and stuff, and I'd seen it mentioned on things. So the first red beans and rice I had was at an old joint called Schweikart's on oh, yeah. Carrollton Avenue. Yeah. You remember that? Sure, yeah. And there was a lady called Missy, a very nice lady, and a black lady who had a big um, sort of white apron and a white hair covering. And I just remember stirring this big pot of beans. And I'd always heard about it, and I was just imagining. I don't know why I imagined, but I just thought it had to be, you know, the most delicious taste. And she put it, red beans and rice with a sausage there in front of me, and I'd hadn't even ever even thought what it looked like or what it was, you know. And I took a taste and I thought it was revolting. <laughs> and, but so I had a task. I had to kind of, um, you know, start being more adventurous. And after a while, it didn't take very long. I just absolutely fell in love with all the food. Right. On. I'd never been a foodie at all until I moved to New Orleans. Not that I'm that much of a foodie. Now my, my, my wife's got much more um, specialized tastes in food than I do. Oh. But, uh, well, you know, uh, you were talking about the Maple Leaf. That's that's maybe the the second time I saw you saw you playing, or the first time I saw you playing piano. As I actually happened to be there the night that uh, I was there seeing James Booker, and the 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 night that he had a seizure on stage, and uh, they wound up having to take him away in an ambulance, and you jumped up and started playing piano. You kind of took over the gig, 
And uh, like, yes, it happened a couple of times. Okay, well, I, I saw one where Bruce Bruce Rayburn brought his drums in and played. Y'all played as a duo for a while, so that was the night that I saw. Oh, I don't remember that one. Yeah, it would happen occasionally because uh, he he was the regular Tuesday night piano player. So um, he would usually, you know, he would usually be late, but he'd usually show up, and he'd be in a bit of a state or less of a state. But there were nights where he just didn't show up at all, and people had already come in and paid at the door, and they, they would line up these seats, you know, like a like a so it'd be like a real recital, and people were already sitting in the seats, and then the bar owner came up, and I was been painting the bar. That was my job at the time, and I sometimes would start so late in the day that I'd have to work into the night to make enough money for the day, which mm-hmm. was all, all the builders that drank the bar thought it was hilarious. And I'd be up there painting at 10 o'clock at night, <laughs> trying to make a few extra bucks. Oh, so I would come down covered in paint, be all over me. And uh, and they're already getting ready for the booker gig. And the owner comes up and says, for fuck's sake, get, clean up that paint and get on the piano quick before they all start asking for their money back. Right. And so, uh, so I was probably still had fair smashing of green paint all over me, but I just had to get up on the piano and play whatever tunes I knew. And I only knew a few tunes. I was just kind of transitioning from one instrument into a greater interest in the piano uh-huh. at that time. But it was still uh, very early for me as a piano player, really. I'd always been a guitar player. And in England, and I've been playing gigs in England since I was a teenager with local bands and stuff. And they were good. You know, it was good playing blues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I enjoyed playing blues guitar. I realized very quickly that the piano is uh, an entree into a whole different world of percussion and you know, all this other stuff too. So it seems like a much bigger field to romp in now. I, though I do still enjoy, I enjoy playing the guitar, but the piano, you get so spoiled with that lovely boss, all that great bass to play with and all the percussive stuff at the top end. It's great, great funk machine. Yeah, so I became a piano player, but that's kind of how it started, was covering for, for James Booker when he didn't show up. Now, what are what are the some of the first bands that you start working with when you uh, when you when you get known around New Orleans? Well, I I really kind of took my time with it. I had a great deal of respect for the musicians here. There, I had limited information, but I had read the John Broven book front to back about four times and made a list of all the records that get got mentioned in the book and picked out a list of records I wanted to buy. Um, but I, that's kind of what I was doing. Then I would, but then I would um, go out and see music every night. And the house I moved into had an old piano. So I would spend a lot of time. We didn't have a television or anything. So I just played the piano and, and listened to the old copy of the solos on the old records. And, and Booker really, his, the stuff he did kind of soaked in through osmosis really. I don't think I never kind of really studied Booker. He was just the cat that played on Tuesday nights. It really wasn't a big deal. So anyway, point is, I did that for a couple of years, and then I had to leave the country. And I had a few chances to kind of sit in and play with people. I'd never really pushed trying to get on stage or anything. Um, but I went back to England and had to do it there. I learned all that stuff playing in pubs in London for about a year, a year and a half. And then when I came back to New Orleans, I started hustling and I started getting gigs with other bands quite. Quickly, I started playing with Mighty Sam McLean, who was a great singer that was around at the time. Sure. And then um, Walter Washington. And then Walter hired me to play in Johnny Adams' band. The great, great Johnny Adams. Yeah, and I noticed uh, that, that you actually played on a bunch of those uh, Johnny classic Johnny Adams records. Uh, the, uh, I think I played maybe one or two um, later for Rounder Records. That was the main label in town. It was recording the older generation of musicians. Yes, yes, but those are terrific records. I, I did a lot of, uh, of of gigs with Johnny on the road and and uh, around town during that time. So yeah, he was a character, wasn't he? <laughs> Johnny was was something else, man. You know, uh, you'd ride in the van all day long, and Johnny wouldn't talk about any of the tunes wouldn't talk about any any of the music and then you get on the bandstand and he'd immediately start turning around to the drummer and stomping his foot and talking about the tempos or you know the feel or something you know on the bandstand i know that he had a really bad habit of doing that and it was kind of embarrassing it was a bit embarrassing for everybody 
Yeah, we'd be in the van the next day. I was like, Johnny, do you, is there, you want to talk about some of these tunes or something? He's like, no, 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 we'll, we'll get it, man. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I don't know. I did a tour one time with him in Europe, and this guy had put together what he thought would be a really good band. And it kind of looked good on paper, but it didn't really work so well when we actually got on stage. But um, Good musicians, though. It was Donald Harrison and on saxophone, Leo Nocentelli on guitar, and Idris Muhammad on drums julius farmer on bass yeah the great band on paper for sure and i thought that sounds like a really good band and then but julius farmer pulled out and um, had another bass player and it was kind of a it was good but we had to learn all this material and we, we arrived in paris and went to the rehearsal studio and it was apparent that we learned this stuff learned all this stuff from johnny's new record and he hadn't learned any of it. Uh -huh. And he had no intention of doing any of it. Yeah. And it was just going to be the same old stand by me for 40 minutes and, uh, uh. and, and a couple of the hits. Right. But, um, but, but, man, I saw him some nights when he was really on. He was amazing. The, oh, the gigs yeah. I did with him early with uh, Dorothy's Medallion Lounge on a regular basis were sometimes spectacular, just wild nights. Yeah, no, what, a, what an incredible uh, voice, man. He was great. Cantankerous old bugger. But I liked him. I think you liked me as well. I got on pretty well with Johnny. Yeah, I got along well with him. He, he kind of kind of reminded me of my grandmother, you know, and that like you could he could tell you anything as long as as long as you agreed with him and said, yeah, Johnny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you could just do whatever you wanted. You know, you just didn't want to disagree yeah. with him. He did. We were on a gig in Stockholm or somewhere and he was doing that whole thing of ragging the band out. And then I took him aside spoke to him at the break to you know it's not here you can't do it and we had a little little talk about it and uh and he was totally cool after that <laughs> nice, nice totally cool but yeah he was just one of uh several of those characters that were around at the time um ernie cato obviously jesse hill and oliver morgan tommy ridgely this that then that r&b generation was still around still doing gigs sure so, sure um, but there, you know, when I first was here, the bands I got to play with. Um, well, I started out getting the first thing I did when I got back to New Orleans from England was called Sunny at Tipitina's and trying to hustle up a gig. Mm. And um, I was really, I'd been doing it for a year and a half in England. I'd learned how to put a band together, call the hustle a club date, plug the PA system in, um, call songs and direct. The musicians because there was never any rehearsals hardly and entertain a room of people and then get paid at the end right so i kind of learned those skills really in london and then applied them when i got back to new orleans and started picking up gigs and you know in the interim booker had died um so i think i was back in like 1985 something like that 1984 uh, booker had died and um there was a bit of an absence of that style of piano. It was conspicuous to me. But at piano night, you would see Willie T and Eddie Bowe. Right. Um, and Devel Crawford was coming up, so, um, and Tommy Ridgely, of course. So you, there were some piano players, and then Alan Toussaint and Matt Revenack. But you didn't see, they were, they were very big acts, so you'd, you'd see them once in a while playing at somewhere like Tips or a bigger gig. Right. But in town, there weren't that many piano players. So a bit of a vacuum for you to jump in and, uh, and fill. Yeah, so I started getting solo piano gigs. And then, um, and then I got hired by Kerry Brown, drummer in town, was the first guy that hired me for a gig with Sam McLean. And that led to the thing with Walter, and that led to the thing with Johnny. Well, you know, you're, you're mentioning uh, Sam McLean, and, and uh, uh, Carlo Ditta was the, the producer for Sam McLean and, and he produced the first session I did in New Orleans. Carlo was the producer. It was for his label. And I, I was I was looking uh, you know through your discography and a record that I played on. I I had forgotten that you played on this record, that uh, Guitar Slim Jr. record. Uh, oh yes, you know, I'd forgotten all about that. That's right. That was a good record, I thought, wasn't it? It's, it's a very good record. It. Yeah, it was, uh, it was nominated for a, a Grammy in the Contemporary Blues uh, category. Yes. I don't remember very much about that session. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> we, I, you, you play on some of the cuts that I'm on, but uh, those were overdubs because you weren't on, at the session, the actual... That's why, yes, that's okay. That makes sense. So I probably just came in and put the piano on after the rhythm tracks were cut. 
Right, right. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, because one of the but who was the Batista horn player that uh, Milton, character that was I think, plays yeah, on Milton, that Bat- Milton Batista, I think, and some other cat were were playing horns, and I think they dug. That was the first time I'd met them, and um, and I kind of and they were nice. We were just kind of hanging out and joking. But later years, I uh, he became a character that was kind of quite fascinating. I wish I'd had the gumption to ask him some questions. You know. That's the great thing about playing with the old musicians is when you can ask them stuff, you know, and get good answers. Sure, sure, yeah, and and, and they're they're not uh, guarded about uh, giving it to you, you know. They no, just kind of like anecdotal stuff about you know, sessions and records they were on, or characters that were around in the world of that in their world at that time. You know? Right. Oh, King was a great raconteur. He had a good memory for stuff that uh, comical stuff that had happened. So was that, I, I saw you, you uh, did some work with Eric Burden. I know he and, and uh, Earl King were great friends. Did you uh, cross paths with him in New Orleans or was that, how did that happen? Eric, yeah. I didn't know he was good friends with Earl King. That's interesting. Um, Eric, yes, I did know him socially through some, uh, another English friend of mine. And Eric started coming to town quite regularly. We'd hang out quite a lot. And then more recently, well, I say recently, it's quite a while ago now, um, he came over and did some, um, tracked a couple of tunes at my, my home studio. And I brought in some horn players and cut an old Smiley Lewis tune. I think I did one of the tracks for his most recent record was basically recorded at my studio. So, um, yes, yeah, so I haven't seen him for a while. I spoke to him on the phone about a year ago, I suppose, six months ago. It sounded very He's well. still alive? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I did not know that. I thought he mm-hmm. died. Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, so. You're a Grammy Award winner, right? We've had we've yeah. had grant we've had some guests who have won Grammys on the show. Now, were you at the actual big show? Because they some of our guests said they were at like another type of show, where the the smaller. I don't nominated. really. Yeah, so that's probably the one where I was. I expect. Yeah, because there, there was a yeah, because we were invited to the big, the big one later on that evening. That was the big hoopla. Okay, and what was, what was your speech like? I mean, did you have something prepared, or did you just wing it? Well, I had to spend a lot of time in makeup, of course. <laughs> and, uh, it took a couple of hours to get the costume on, and then with the lighting and all the sort of pyrotechnics and whatever. But, um, uh, by the time they'd finished all that there wasn't any any time left for me to say anything so I just you just said thank you and left <laughs> I made my excuses and left yeah. <laughs> well that's great so Renee I think it's the time to for our refill I, I think, think it is time? yeah yeah it's look, looks that yeah, way yeah I'm gonna here. put the kettle on and make a cup of tea yeah okay so uh, John this is a part of the show I don't know if you know about this but we take a little break where we go uh uh, uh, refill our libation and mm-hmm. the, the troubled nation knows what to do and then we'll come back and we'll chat some more okay nation we'll be right back people sometimes gotta stoop so low I wouldn't do that me I wouldn't do that me I wouldn't do that I don't need the money just the people I
we're back. Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coman. Back with our guest, Mr. John Cleary. Now, John, we've had a variety of sponsors over the whole course of this uh, podcast. We're back to our original sponsor now, which is Loose Change. And uh, Loose Change, it's, uh, it's not a specific sponsor as such, but uh, Loose Change is everywhere, right, Manny? Exactly. In fact, I found... I found 53 cents today in my car ashtray. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I don't even smoke. That's where I keep all my money. Okay. The ashtray. So, yeah, in ashtray. The car, we, in the car. Yeah, in the car ashtray. Right. We've mentioned uh, the couch cushions. We've mentioned uh, uh, pants pockets. You'll find loose change. Um also uh, under under the seat of the car. So wherever you may find loose change, uh, you know, uh, if you're a, if you're a devotee of the the troubled men podcast, you're out there in the, the troubled nation. Uh, you know, consider passing that loose change on to us and uh, it helps support the uh, the production costs of, of the uh, the podcast. We have the the PayPal account, the cocktail fund. We have the the uh, the Patreon page. You can. Uh, become a, a patron uh, i know john has a patreon page and uh, you know the the those those devoted weekend week out supporters uh, the, that's the real bread and butter so uh, we, we want to thank those people that are supporting us and and uh, can continue to encourage other people to uh, to get some skin in the game and uh, you know for free you can uh, follow us on uh, on uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe, rate, review our podcast. Give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. Yes, Manny? How are we doing as, as our ratings? Are we still up there? Because I remember about a, and six, nine months ago, you said we were like uh, one of the top podcasts well, there for a while. Well, we, we, I don't know. we are still among the top 5% of podcasts worldwide, Manny, believe it or not. Um, wow. Now, now you know there. Now five percent. That's that's big because you know there's like several million podcasts out there. You know, like a Joe Rogan is maybe in the the top point zero one percent or something like that. But <laughs> but still, you know, there's ninety five percent of the podcasts are are uh, less listened to and less subscribed than than ours. So uh, you know we're that's that's an A. So we're doing good, man. So that yeah, that's uh, so keep sh so it's all about the sharing, right? We have to share. Sure, sharing. You know, uh, just keep the, the, listeners, the listenership up. Yes, uh, and the uh, you know we we keep grinding sharing them out. Sharing the loose change. Week. Sharing the loose change and and sharing the great guests like our our guest uh, tonight, Mr. John Clary. Well, what I used to do with loose change mm -hmm. before this podcast started, I think I told you this before. I would go down to, uh, downtown and I'd throw the loose change in the traffic and watch the homeless guys try to get it. Right. That yes, was, you, uh, you that, had yeah. that. You, you <laughs> talked about that on the last podcast. Yes. Yeah, so, I love doing that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to do that anymore though because. Uh, I'd rather just give them a tent, you know. Okay. And uh, right. those tents are great. But listen, uh, before we get to our guest, mm -hmm. who's exciting to me, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, with all the stuff here uh, locally, the uh, the, the uh, hurricane Ida, and then Nicholas, and right. then, uh, uh, but we still we're still dealing with this pandemic. Yep. And uh, the numbers aren't good. No. They're not good at all for the state and for this southern part of the state. Not good at all. But, you know, it, it, but it's just crazy going nuts. Uh, uh, people are so fucking divided still on the mask. You know, the mask is such a big division. And I don't know if I talked about this before. But uh, did, did you hear in, in Texas just a couple of weeks ago, a, um, a couple was kicked out of a restaurant for wearing a mask. Hmm, really? <laughs> yeah, for wearing masks. The the people, the, the waitress and the hostess said, get the hell out of this restaurant. We don't want your kind here, you mask-wearing vaxxers. Oh, jeez. You know? <laughs> oh, so, I mean, how ridiculous is we, it getting? We don't have it. There's no hope for us, man. This will be, with, with that kind of attitude, this will be with us for years, man. I think so. I, I absolutely think so. Uh, you know, so, uh, it's sad. I feel sad for, uh, the kids because the kids are the ones who suffer the most. Uh, so many kids like my daughter is losing 
two years of her high school experience to this whole thing. Right. You know, and, and I, I feel bad for her, even though she says for Halloween, she wants to dress up as me because it's the most gross and scary thing she's seen in years. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, jeez. Uh, it's a quote, unquote. She said, oh. that's what I'm doing for Halloween. So I said, you do that, kid. See, uh, <laughs> see, where, see where that college fund goes. Right, 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 right. Yeah, M Manny does have other things he could spend your college fund on. Don't, don't worry. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, well, if she had a college fund. Okay. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's the, that's the surprise part for her. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's get back to John Cleary because he's exciting to me and he's high on tea. Yes, right yeah, yeah. He's, all, he's all jacked up on yes, caffeine. Yes, so I've got over halfway through my second gallon of the day. What kind of tea do you like? You're an English person. I'm sure you, you, there's all sorts of teas. Are you just kind of basic tea guy? Mm, no, well, um, yes and no. PG tips. PG tips. PG tips. Okay. It's like this bowl. You see, in England, it's just a standard tea. It's not like a fancy brand or anything like that. It's just what everyone, you get that. Or Taifu, Brook Bomb. There's a few big tea companies. But here, you can't get it, so it makes it look like you're being really fussy with your tea. Well, so uh, when we last left you, we were, we were getting into your, the, the beginnings of your, or, or the, 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 you were establishing yourself as a New Orleans piano player now, uh, and, and you play with Johnny Adams, you, you play with uh, John Mooney and, uh, you know, Guitar Slim, you make all these records uh, with all these, you know, some great, great Louisiana artists, Bobby Charles. At some point, you hook up with Bonnie Raitt, the great Bonnie Raitt. Now, how does that happen? Um, like most of these things, really kind of like word of mouth. And then um, she was a guest on a Taj Mahal record that I was... Uh, doing in los angeles and i think i had to sing some a background vocal part or whatever she liked the sound of my voice i think really that's kind of made her curious hmm. and then um and so so that was nice and i'd met her once at tipitina's with john mooney he introduced us sure but then um i so so there were a couple of occasions there was a i got i was playing in the house band for bb king when he was inducted into some the Blues Hall of Fame oh, and some nice. of these kind of things. And there were lots and lots of special guests like Ike Turner and Rufus Thomas and uh, John Lee Hooker, all kinds of people got cool, up and played Revenac. Yeah, it was kind of hip. Um, and uh, she was there and, and um, I think that was about the time she asked me if I would join the band. I think she was trying out a new combination and I think she dug the what she'd heard me doing. I think she always liked New Orleans piano players anyway. New Orleans. She likes a New Orleans accent, I guess I'm trying to say on the, on the keyboard. So. Right, right. And you played with her for quite a while, huh? Yeah. I was with Taj's band for a couple of years and then I left to join her band and I did that for about 10 years. Wow. Amazingly. I didn't, that wasn't my intention when I joined. She's a sweetheart. I actually saw her um, two days ago in California. We were out there on a gig getting closer to our present time here uh you know we go into lockdown uh, whatever it was 18 months ago or something I, I see you you uh you immediately jump into the live streams in a pretty big way or, or i don't know maybe not immediately but you i uh, saw many of these uh quarantine happy hours that you did quarantini happy hours they're very successful uh and uh, well, tell us about that. Was were you reluctant to uh, to get into live streaming? What was your attitude towards all that? I hadn't really ever given it much thought, um, but I saw that I, it just seemed obvious to me that this thing was going to spread when we first started hearing news about this. And I told my managers that I thought they would cancel jazz festival, which seemed an absurd notion at that point early on. Mm -hmm. But I kind of saw it coming. I thought, there's no way it can't. It's going to spread, and they're going to have to cancel everything. Right. Um, and I usually play, at that time, I was playing a regular Tuesday night gig at Chicky Wawa on Canal Street. Um, every Tuesday at 8 o'clock in the evening, I'd go and play piano, and a uh, nice lot of local fans would come down and out of town. So it was all very cool. Um, but I knew I could see which, which way the wind was blowing and was ready when the gigs did get cancelled, to just play piano at the appointed time, at the same time, 8 o'clock, but just do it from my studio. 
And so uh, I did some research online and bought some very basic equipment and did it with a laptop computer with my wife uh, doing all the clever stuff, difficult stuff. And uh -huh. I just sat there and played the piano for, for an hour, or 45 minutes. And, um, and there's, you know, quite a few people watched it, people that would have come to the Tuesday night gig. Basically, I'd left to send some message saying, the gig's cancelled, but I'm still going to play at 8 o'clock. Just got to tune in. And so, um, and so we just did it again the following Tuesday because you didn't know if it was going to be a few weeks or a month, perhaps. He'd <laughs> said, this is going to last for over a year and a half. Right. Out of their minds. But um, so there was no plan to it. So I did that um, Tuesdays and then on Sundays, I think it was, I did a little uh, half-hour piano lesson thing. But um, it was using my studio space. You know, we had to keep breaking down and plugging it all back in, and I'm useless at that stuff. And uh, my wife was working at the time. So we'd done it for several months, and it was fun. But I thought it would be good to stop it while it was still fun. Right. I, think I was running out of things to say, basically. <laughs> sure. Because I mean, there was no script or anything. I just got up there and just started fielding. The idea really was to have people ask specific questions about the music. Mm -hmm. And that's the stuff that would interest me if I was watching, you know. So um, a lot of people would phone in the questions, and some of them were good ones. And they would allow me to illustrate on the piano how the, some of this music is put together. And a lot of people were very interested in that because, of course, you forget people that most people can't play music. Right. And for them, it's all just this magical, mysterious thing with no conception of the laws of music or how it's assembled. And we as musicians obviously have been doing it for a long time. And we, part of us approaches it from a technical perspective. It's very technical. And we understand what's going on and see all the patterns. And we have to be analytical when you're playing music. But um, the casual uh, civilian listener has no idea how it's put together. So if you can break it down and demonstrate one or two little things in the way that's palatable and understandable for someone who doesn't actually play an instrument, I think it's quite, they find it quite interesting. Because everybody loves music. So to get a little glimpse under the hood. Sure, yeah. That's the idea, you know, the questions. And I think that's why people enjoyed it, really. And then we started bringing in some, some friends of mine to come in and do it. I think Nigel Hall was the first. Okay. And I saw at some point you did one uh, for Tipitina's with uh, Ivan Neville. Y'all did a, a duo live stream. Yeah. And uh, also I saw one that, that you did uh, with Charlie Gabriel from, uh, from uh, Preservation Hall. That was very I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed playing. I'd never played with him before. I don't think he had a clue who I was. He probably never heard of me. Yeah. But he knew he was just supposed to play with his piano player. So I showed up and said, let me go on straight away. And um, we just played these tunes and he just, he wung it, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> got it, and got it all right. It was great. So we're actually, we're actually going to do a duo gig in October. I can't remember what the date is of the show, but uh, everyone can look it up online and find out. At the Ace Hotel, the three oh. keys at the Ace Hotel, with oh. just me and him, me, him, and an upright piano and his clarinet and his saxophone and we're just going to wing it and uh, play an evening's worth of music old tunes and whatever we want to play nice so that'll be here nice yeah i don't like the live stream the sterility of the live stream um, thing you know a lot of the live stream shows that i saw where i thought were profoundly depressing because <laughs> i think a lot of people were treating them like gigs and what i didn't want to do was play any song all the way through huh it wasn't a performance okay it was more just using uh, the piano to answer musical questions and then occasionally think they provoke funny stories or whatever. You know. did, did you do any of these porch concerts? Did you do any of that? Because I saw a lot of people try to do that a lot. It just didn't seem to work. No, not really. No, I didn't do that. I did play shortly after lockdown. I played in someone's show in, the, in, a, in somebody's house uptown. They had a stage yeah. and they invited people to come, and um, that felt really good, you know. But people were buying tickets. It wasn't like a porch gig or balcony gig where people are Venmoing you money and stuff like that. No, it was an actual gig. It was an actual gig, and they okay. were, it was legal. You know, it was a time when we were, it was not long after lockdown, so it was kind of hard to put on a, a live show. Everyone had to go through all the rigmarole. Right. Um, now, what about teaching? Have you ever taught, you know, get students who teach? Um, I have taught, but not for decades. Um, but you do, you do have a, a 
a piano course though, right? You do have like an, a, an instructional series. There is one instructional series that, um, that I did for, uh, an English chap that came over a couple of years ago and he was um, making an inductor. Uh, he's a good piano player himself. Um, but he wanted to make a, a video of, uh, some aspects of New Orleans, um, piano playing and just so when I talk to this thing and demonstrate some of the technique and the fingerings. Mm. So, yeah, so there is that, um, it's very hard to, to, um, know where to make things, to simplify things. So it's easier for people to get, or whether you're supposed to jazz it up and make it more sophisticated for those people who are actually accomplished pianists and want to learn. So it's a bit hard to know where to pitch stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I think we got it right with this one I did, and we're going to do another one, actually, in a couple of months. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, I, I, I know that you have been out doing a bunch of dates recently. I saw you were over in England for, was that like a month or something, doing solo dates? and I did some solo gigs in England, yes. And then I went to Italy and um, to chill out for a bit. And then played a show in solo show in Lugano, just over the border in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then spent three days trying to get back to New Orleans because the airport was shut. And all flights were cancelled. How was that playing uh, playing live in in England uh, during the pandemic? What was? It's a little club. There's a three joints called the Pizza the Pizza Express, basically in the jazz venues, and it's a restaurant too. But um, I was doing. Um, five nights I think or four nights consecutive nights in one of their branches which is in Chelsea in West London I'm staying around the corner so it was lovely the small it was a very small club nice time my grand piano and it was sold out each show was sold out so that seemed pretty normal I can't remember if everyone had to wear their masks through the gig but anyway gigs were happening you know it's with some trepidation but it's coming back it's coming back here too I haven't actually been playing much in town but um, a lot of other out of town stuff. Yeah, I saw you were in in Vegas at the uh, the big blues bender uh, event they have there, and then you were in in uh, Texas right after that playing some live dates. Every weekend's been a different part of the country. Um, for start up with the New York gig, we had to cancel because it was like right after the storm, we couldn't get out. Uh -huh. But then St. Louis and Las Vegas the next weekend, and then the following weekend down in Texas, at Continental in Houston, and Antones in Austin. Uh, and a solo gig in Dallas, which was a lot of fun. And then the uh, day before yesterday, I was in California. We went out and played two shows in uh, in California. And then I'm home for a couple of days. And on Saturday, I go to Pittsburgh. And we play in Pittsburgh on Saturday night. And I come back the next day. Warms my heart to see you out there, uh, uh, you know, kick-starting this thing. Yeah, it's become, gone from zero to 100. But what all these different states and cities have different rules with the pandemic. Uh, are you seeing that or, or is it just basically everyone's wearing a mask or because I know, you know, you have to show proof of vaccination in some places. I hadn't had to provide that until actually here in New Orleans. Oh, okay. Um, places we were playing the only place i've had to show uh proof of vaccination in new orleans is one time i went to the frost top to get a hamburger and they actually asked to see my uh my vaccination uh certificate no i got asked to show it in san francisco and then i got asked to show it somewhere else i can't remember no not really you know things are going along it's just take it's gonna take a, i think a lot of older people are still wary about going to busy nightclubs and potentially catching COVID. So the numbers are down. And a lot of my fans are, are all ages. You know, so there's an older age group that comes to my gigs. Well, Renee, the reason why, the reason why Frost Top asked you, Renee, is because if the vaccine, I mean, if the COVID doesn't kill you, their burgers will. Oh, I like those I mean, burgers, man. No, I like those burgers. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. God, they're awful. Yeah, Ted's, Ted's awful. Oh, well, no, no, I, I, I disagree. Um, uh, so It's very sad to see when we were, when we were driving back in from Lafayette to New Orleans after the storm, I saw a throw stop that had the, had the actual throw, the, the brute beer can blown off the top. Oh, yeah, that was out near Laplace, right? Near Laplace. Yeah, near Laplace. Yeah, yeah. I, I, saw, yeah, I saw that picture too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, you can have that burger, Renee. All right. Thank you. I still thank miss you, the throw stop thing at, um, 
Remember King Roger's Seafood on St. Claude? That was an, an old fro stop. I, I like that you call it fro stop. <laughs> uh, you're not the first person yeah. I've heard uh, use that term, but uh, but yes, uh, who, who knows how to, how to pronounce it? Um, frost top. I always stop. thought it was fro stop. Frost top. I never even frost thought of top. That. Yeah, frost yeah. Top. It's it's confusing. Um, yeah. Well, you know, uh, we're 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 nearing the end of the the podcast, but uh, I I uh, uh, something caught my eye as I was looking over all of your your material, and I was looking at all your your extensive international touring, all the 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 fantastic places you've played, and uh, saw that you you've played at uh, Royal Albert Hall and San Quentin Prison. Not on the same night, though. I hasten to add. Sure, no, no, that would be tough. You'd have to be Santa Claus or something. But, uh, but uh, tell yeah. us about those two gigs. Well, they were both at Bonnie Raitt. Um, playing in London at the Albert Hall is very prestigious. Uh, never actually been to the Albert Hall before, and there's a sort of cavernous maze of tunnels where all the dressing rooms are. And I just bought a violin. I was torturing everybody in the tour bus because I just bought a violin. Oh, God. To learn how to play it. So that's one of my memory of the Albert Hall is being in a secluded dressing room, caterwauling on the violin, and then hanging out with Kev Moe for a little bit. Oh. And then the um, San Quentin, yeah, we played for um, Prisoners in San Quentin. That was pretty freaky. Uh, that's nice, just to man. to see from the stage all the guys in their little groups that they that they all gather into. Mm. Um, very segregated and very odd. Was it was it Thursday in San Quentin when you played? <laughs> uh, what happens on Thursday? Uh, it's not a good day. It's not a good day. Well, it depends. It depends. Yeah. It could be, yeah. But uh, we'll you'll have to listen back to some of our previous podcasts. We don't need to 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 go go through the. Well, it may be a Thursday. I don't know if Saturday really exists for them out there. I don't know if you're in prison in San Quentin, whether a Saturday is any different from a Tuesday. Right, right, right. So uh, I guess, yeah, every day is Thursday. Right, right. oh, jeez. Yeah, but that's the thing about being a musician is you do have this amazing privilege to sometimes find yourself in situations where you wouldn't otherwise be. And so you can play in the, little, in the projects one day and then be playing in the Royal Street, uh, the Royal Suite at Claridge's a few days later in London. Nice. And then, uh, you know, it's amazing, really. I've been very, very lucky as a musician to get little gl glimpses of different worlds. You know, and I love traveling anyway. I've always been an ardent traveler. So the, that, the fact that I can combine the two is a real privilege. Yeah, so now you've finally made it on the Troubled Men podcast, John. So, uh, you know, you can... Yeah. And now, if that's right, my final uh, Check that desire box. has been accomplished. Your final destination. <laughs> it goes no further than this. The end of my career. You'll never hear from me again. That was the point where it all started going horribly wrong. Oh, God. Let's hope not exactly. <laughs> Why did I go on that show? Why did I go oh, on that, that show? That fateful day. I have no regrets having made it, though. So, anyway, thank you very much, fellas. See you next time. Yeah, John, thank you yeah, so much for, you. for coming on the podcast. And uh, as always, on the Trouble Man podcast, we like to say, trouble never ends. But the struggle continues. Good night. Good night. Right now
nobody She's generally Jerry Knight Don't tell nobody She's my baby And that's why I call her Little Miss Dynamite Some say Dynamo do Some say Dynamo don't Some say Dynamo will 